Don't look now. Welcome back to Don't Look Now, the podcast with your hosts, Jenny McDonald and Will Hegeman, bringing you fun stories every week. We're hanging out in our semi-isolation. Jenny's off in Topeka, holed up in her house. I'm holed up in mine in Manhattan. We're, we're having our glorious Zoom podcast, and uh, sadly, it's actually going pretty well. <laughs> it's actually a relief to know that this is a good option uh, yep. in case we ever got desperate, like if there's a freak storm yeah. and we haven't prepped for this but yeah it's kind of nice even if there's there's no COVID-19 around to know that we can pull off a podcast without having to have anybody travel to a different town so yeah I mean it would just be nice if we could be in the same town yeah no, that, that'd be a plus yeah but I don't you know. see that being a thing since apparently I live at KU now yeah but the I mean the Redina's coffee is still open so oh, you know Redina's, I miss them. They, they now have delivery and other things if you want to you know call them so you can get coffee and sandwiches and whatnot and i bet they would meet me halfway our family has has taken advantage of that a few times yes it makes us slightly less secure but it also gives us coffee and you know turkey and of turkey all pesto of sandwiches places, so i know. feel like Redina's probably has a pretty high quality of like cleanliness i feel less scared with them than a few other places i can think of that i yeah. won't name but you know mm, yep no they but, are the perfect uh, level of cleanliness for a coffee shop for yeah, me you like, know, we haven't died yet so it's all, yeah. it's all good i guess so well all right so what have you got for us this week well since it's easter i mm -hmm. thought maybe i'll look up easter traditions and um why we do what we do and then two seconds into that i was like <laughs> religious holidays can i misquote from the bible and not <laughs> get angry at me um so i don't really want to switched over to pagan bunny worship but, uh, right like and i don't want to say something and then have people be upset because at some yeah. point i'm going to say the thing that like burns the final bridge uh, <laughs> So I thought maybe uh, I will do something else. So what other things can I talk about that are involve the word Easter? Hmm. Hmm. Hmm, let's see. Other Easter activities that aren't Easter. Uh, Easter Island. <gasps> oh, my God. You got it on your first board. Nice. Yet. Cool. That's pretty impressive, Will. Hey. We might have known each other too long. We may have yeah, to yeah. You know, we got to talk about some giant stone heads and where they came from. We do. We do. All right. So let's get started. All right. We're going to start with uh, quotes from a wonderful 19th century seafarer who was French by the name of Pierre Lottie. Um, his description is beautiful because back in these times, people actually like used poetic language to describe things they're exploring yes. versus modern science, which is just like, it's a brown blob. Yeah. Nope. One thing that, that does remind me of immediately, I just finished my, my World War I book, and it, uh, you know, it was the Guns of August, which is a pretty famous history book, but it uh, covers the first month of the war. But it did mention that the, you know, the French commander-in-chief could you know, never be forced onto the telephone. He refused to use the telephone like, for any kind of communications. And it wasn't a security thing or anything else, but it was because he knew that you know, 
history was focused on what he said and he wanted no actual straight up record of the actual words he used because everything would be poeticized later if you know in the standard tradition of yes gentlemen we show blah 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 as opposed to yeah you go over here and we'll do this and yeah good okay bye you know which is the actual transaction you get because there's like one time that they forced him onto the phone to get a decision to basically okay the the battle of the marne and it's it's a much more simple non-poetic sort of you know conversation than every other one reported and it's because it's the only one that was actually you know recorded by people and you know can you imagine when the book that comes out about um anything in the last 10 years uh, and they're doing like political figures quotes or (laughs) they're doing anything that's like this guy said this it's all going to be like he tweeted on january 4th 1990 wait tweet wasn't around then 90s 2012 this was tweeted (laughs) and like it's going to be just yep do it like 120 characters or less it's not going to be poetic it's not going to be beautiful we really lost some of that flowery, miscellaneous language we don't need, but just makes things. Yeah. Guys, yeah. we got off on an English thing again, didn't we? Yeah, we did. But I, I wish I could remember the exact quote. But there's somewhere early on where the, the Kaiser says something, you know, and it's something about the, you know, the grand hope and the glory of blah, 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 blah. And, you know, the, the book is like, yes, ladies and gentlemen, in 1914, people could say that without embarrassment, you know? It's like, right. If you said <laughs> these that are various now, concepts like, were said at the time completely unselfconsciously, and people believed them, you know? It was, it was like, people had ideals, and they actually, you know, believed in them. Yeah, and it was kind of like, the great disillusionment, disillusionment was to come with the war, and it's never been the same since. But, you know, it was, it was interesting. Anyway, back to Easter Island. So Frenchman sees the island and says something poetic. So. Yes. There exists in the midst of the great ocean, in a region where no one goes, a mysterious and isolated island. <laughs> yeah, that, the island. No, go ahead. No, I can say that's, yeah, that's way French. That's, that's like every time you watch any Jacques Cousteau thing, it's like, yes, I exactly. watched the turtles and the turtles were one with me and I was one with them and we were all one with the sea. You know, it, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. That also sounds like a cult leader from Hawaii. I can't remember what the cult was, but they lived in a big commune. And he he spoke like that all the time. It was like a Yoda thing. He was, nice. <laughs> I was part of the universe. The universe is part of me and the universe is part of us all. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Got to start spouting more stuff like that then. I know. Yeah. I mean, it might be superfluous words, but I think that it's necessary. Yep. I need to talk like that. Start my new chapter of the Golden Dawn or whatever. And then, you know. Perfect. Yeah, sounds good. Anyhow, the island is planted with monstrous great statues. The work of who I don't know what race, today, degenerate, or vanished. (laughs) It's great remains an enigma. There you go. This this is classy. People need to say things like this. Yeah, that's why you need more French people exploring the world. (laughs) I'm like... More During likely to this, say such things. Right? During this yeah. period, too, people just had so many words to describe things. Like, yeah. it was unbelievable. And that made people want to adventure more. And if you were wealthy and, like, could do that, you would. Because why not? Look at the things. It's out of the mist in the ocean arose an island. And on the island, full of greenery. Like, it just sounds <laughs> so beautiful. I want to go. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's, I think, My Fair Lady, there's a line in the song where, you know, the 
the French don't care what you do so much as how you say it. So, you know, it's, <laughs> there you go. Exactly. Actions don't matter, but the way you say it, that's what matters. So. That actually is good way to French. say it. So. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Okay. All right. So the first known European visitor to Easter Island was the Dutch explorer, Jacob Roggeveen. 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 Sounds Dutch. He arrived in 1722. The Dutch named the island Pazeland, which means Easter Island, to commemorate the day that they arrived. In 1770, the Spanish Viceroy of Peru sent an expedition to the island. Um, the explorers set up, spent four days ashore and estimated a native population of about 3,000 people. Just four years later, the British navigator Sir James Cook arrived to find Easter Island's population decimated. Um, it seemed to have had a civil war, so only yeah. about 600 to maybe 700 men. That's brutal. And 30 women. That's more brutal. Right. A French navigator named Jean-Francois de Gala, Lord, this man's name, Comte de la Perouse, <laughs> this dude, uh, mm -hmm. found, though, in, let's see, so we went from 1774 to 1786, right? Mm -hmm. He found about 2,000 people that were living on the island again. So, and just that short period of time, fast. boom, with only 30 women, what? Yeah. <laughs> this is yeah. opposite to the Doctor Strange Love mind shaft ratio that they recommend. But Maybe people like left the islands and more like they went and got the women back after the Civil yeah. War. Maybe they were just you know hiding and and pulling a That's yanking really the chain possible. of you know Captain. Kirk I would. Or I mean, um, so when there was a lot of wars in other countries, they would hide the women first. So it's highly possible they were just hiding from strangers. Yeah. So that's where I'm going with, because 700 and maybe like 500 women hiding makes much more sense than 30 women, but... Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Who knows? Um, so a major slave raid from Peru in 1862 followed by epidemics of smallpox reduced the population to 111 people in 1877. Yeah. And around that time, the Catholic missionaries showed up and they settled on the island and tried to convert everyone to Christianity. Um, and that process was completed by the late 19th century. And then in 1888, Chile annexed Easter Island because they're, if you don't know your geography, it's very close to each other. Um, anyhow, Chile annexed Easter Island, leasing much of the land for sheep raising. Uh, the Chilean government appointed a civilian governor for Easter Island in 1965, and the island's residents all became full Chilean citizens. There you go. Okay. I have like five drinks around my desk, so <laughs> like switching a lot. It's not, nice. I'm just really thirsty today. Okay. Yeah, just double handing it. Just yeah, double fist in the drinks. Just... Right. Yeah. I've got like five different cases of seltzer water because somebody brought them all. <laughs> I, I buy seltzer water and I drink it slowly, but if it's in yeah. the room with me, I'll just, anyhow, moving on. Can jump on the quinine parade that's going on now. So you know. I like that because it's really good for muscle cramps. I just can't stand club soda. Ugh, whatever. I love club soda. It's so good. Tonic water is nasty. Nasty. You are so, so nasty, sir. So, so nasty. I just drink it plain. I have since I was in high school. I used to get Charlie horses, and my doctor uh, recommended I drink them. Same doctor, by the way, who saw my knee for nice. my MCL tear. And I remember when I was in high school, I was sitting there with my mother in the room with me and I had injured my other knee and I was having leg cramps and he goes, Oh, just drink some gin and tonics. 
my mom looked at him and then looked at me and I was like, I'm 17. And he goes, or not. Maybe yeah, just drink the tonic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, but yeah, it tells you how nasty tonic is if you have to have a hard alcohol to gag it down. It's a nasty but, tonic. Know. So, yeah. But, but yeah, you know, haven't had malaria, but I kind of wonder if it's preferable, but you know, whatever. Wow. I don't think it's preferable, but yeah. Yeah. You know, Horrid suffering and death or tonic water. I don't, I don't know. Dang. Well, yeah. Yeah. Opinions. Yeah. I know. I mean, things that taste nasty, taste nasty. I mean, it's, it's, I don't know. I think it's one of those things you get a taste for once you start drinking it. Um, I, I hope. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Anyway, to early travelers, the spectacle of immense stone figures, um, once serenely godlike and savagely human, were almost beyond imagining. The island's population was too small and too primitive and too isolated to be credited with such feats of artistry, engineering, <laughs> and labor. I always right? love how people are just, they're just too primitive to have done that. <laughs> I would love to understand this primitive, like, phraseology yeah. a little bit better. So, like, the ancient aliens people are like, there's no way they could have done these things because they were so primitive. What does that, what does that yeah. mean? Yeah. So, yeah, I think we all we all know from the Western standpoint what that means, but yeah, you know. <laughs> they weren't white enough. Yeah, exactly. These people are yeah. way too brown to have done something impressive. So, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, it's a shame uh, that that is still true. I mean, it's still truly yeah. used as a way to push down populations. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Good to stuff. the poor Aborigines. <laughs> Uh, all right. Someday I will do a whole Aborigine episode because I just think that their culture is fantastic. Yep. I just have never sat down long enough to put it together. That'd be cool. I'll get there eventually. All right. Um, so yeah, uh, Mariner Captain James Cook wrote in 1774, we could hardly conceive how these islanders, wholly unacquainted with any mechanical power, could raise these stupendous figures. Um, and he speculated wildly on how the statues might have been raised, <laughs> um, thinking originally it was like a little bit at a time. They used piles of stones and a bunch of scaffolding. And honestly, there's a lot of speculation about this. And I, I think I talk about it later. Now I don't remember if I do. One of the speculations, though, I'd like to point out is that they used trees mm -hmm. and they rolled them um, kind of like if um they put a bunch of trees and then they roll and then when the tree starts to pop out they put another tree under yeah. and keep going yep and um one of the arguments is that there's no way they could do this because if you go to the island now there's no trees yeah. and i'll get into this later it's like there okay. used to be all right, <laughs> yeah, yeah. right. exactly there yeah. used to be trees kind of like greece used to be covered in you know trees and olives and now it's it's mostly a barren rock and right you know. well and it's like you get to the island and there's like a hundred people left. So there's no yeah. way that they had enough people to do this. Well, they yeah. used to. We just killed yeah. them all off with our diseases, right? Yeah, good stuff. But yeah, that no, makes me think of the uh, the old uh, Coral Castle and mm -hmm. the fact that, you know, it had to be magic that the guy somehow managed to move rocks around without, you know, bulldozers. So, Well, they never saw the machinery. How else yeah, did he yeah. do it? Without machinery, how can you do anything? Yeah. Exactly. All right, so speculation, speculation. Um, and then by the time that Cook had arrived on the island in the 1770s, islanders had actually toppled most of the, stat the statues and were neglecting the ones that were left. Um, so people just thought it was this like very mysterious, magical thing that these strangers from a strange land came to and then they dissipated and then these brown people took over. All right, 
let's move on. So the island itself is 14 miles long and seven miles wide. Um, and it's about 2,000 miles off the coast of South America and 1,100 miles from the nearest Polynesian uh, neighbor, which is Pitcairn Island, hey, where the mutineers nice. from the bounty yep. um, hid in the 19th century. So it's too far south for a tropical climate. There's no coral reefs. There's not perfect beaches. Um, there's a lot of downpours and perennial winds. Um, it's still kind of, though, just a beautiful island from pictures, obviously. Uh, it's got a beautiful mixture of geology. There's a ton of, like, native art. There's a volcanic cone and lava flows. There's steep cliffs. There's rocky coves. And then these megalithic statues are just even more intense because there's not a lot on the landscape anymore. Yeah. Um, and they have a really rich form of island arts that have continued on for about a thousand years because this island has been pretty like isolated for over a thousand years. Even okay. though we have tourism coming in and now mm -hmm. the culture has been pretty strong. Right. Yeah. So they um, have, wooden bark cloth, strings and feathers, songs and dances. Um, they have a form of pictorial writing called Rongorongo. And that, unfortunately, they have lost the ability to translate. Hmm. Um, and no one has ever been able to decipher it. So any of you people out there that dig that kind of thing, get on that. Um, and then they still have a society of hereditary chiefs, priests, and clan guilds that have lived there, right? Okay. So the, the stones aren't the most exciting thing about this island. Um, a lot of the art and the history have made the island unique. But people are having a really hard time unraveling what the actual history of the island is. Um, and there's a ton of interpretations and arguments. And we will get into some of those as we move forward because literally there's a new argument every year. Um, I think I saw a new one on what happened in January. Okay. So there's always a new article yeah. coming out in archaeology about what's going on and what happened. Um, so the the big things to take away, right? Mm -hmm. um, you get the missionaries anecdotes. You have what the archaeologists are saying. You have anthropologists who are listening to oral histories. And this is still not enough. We still don't yeah. have enough information. We don't know when the first people arrived. We don't really know where they came from. We don't know for certain why they carved these statues. Nobody really knows how they got the statues moved and then raised up onto the platforms that they sit on. Um, why did they topple them? And you can get an answer and then next week somebody will change it. Right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Opinions are everywhere. So that's the, that's the fun of something like that. Just... Opinions are like assholes. Everybody has one. Yep. That's, mean... that's the word. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, over the past few decades, archaeologists have assembled evidence that the first settlers came from another Polynesian island, but nobody can agree on which one. Um, estimates of when the people first reached the island vary. Um, some people think first to the 6th century. That's 600 years, so like, yeah. that's a lot of time. And no one can decide, did they find the place by design or by accident? Yeah. I, I'm still just amazed that the Polynesians managed to cross thousands of miles of ocean and find all these little speck islands everywhere and inhabit them. You know, I, I'm amazed enough that you can go around on the Pacific ocean with a, a modern ship and not die. So, you know, it, I don't know. 
how you manage to do this without running out of food and water and everything else, trying to find That's some land somewhere. Space, right? Yeah, that is that is amazing slash insane. So, yeah. I've often wondered, because one of the things that we talk about in anthropology slash archaeology, whichever you want to call it today, um, is the theory of the peopling of the lands. Mm-hmm. And one of the theories is that they rafted from place to place, which makes sense if you're talking about rafting from like India to Australia. Yeah. It's only like in some areas it's as few as 60 miles or if you're crossing the Bering Strait and like, I don't know, some of that makes more sense to me. But then there's one theory that monkeys rafted and by rafted, like they, they cut a tree to South America. Like, yeah, they held on to something, you know, and then, yeah, I don't know how fast currents move and how long it would take for something to drift, but man, trying to stay alive that long is. Well, and then my question is, did they really drift that far or was it when we had bigger land masses, but we didn't have land masses at the time. We think that the out of Africa theory started. So yeah. there are a lot of questions. This yeah. is another whole tangent that I could go on for days. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it's always, you know, I kind of always wonder, is it like, were people really, really good at ocean faring? So they found all these islands or were there just, you know, thousands of groups that ventured out and 99% of them just died out on the ocean and we don't know anything about them. And a couple of them managed to run into someplace and, you know, now they're settled. When I took Andean archaeology, we talked about some of the peopling of the Americas because South America is considered part of the Americas, obviously. Um, And they talked about, there was a particular population that had pots that looked like identical to pots in Japan. Mm Mm-hmm. And the theory was, was that people came to that part of South America from Japan and traded pots. And like the fact that that trade route was already open Mm -hmm. blew my mind. Like, how do you, you don't, you don't even know what's beyond, but you just did it. And that's, that's cool, man. People are good at stuff. And I guess, you know, got to do something with your life. I mean, you know, (laughs) if you're hanging out and there's not a lot of other, you know, it's like, you know what, I'm just going to head out on the sea and. See, what, See happens. what the hell happens, you know. Everybody dies at 30 anyway, so let's, let's you know, let's give it a shot, you know. Not everybody died at 30 always, though. Like, yeah. that was more renaissance level when we were at the height of our, like, whiteness. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm just thinking in general when, you know. Yeah, lifespans were not long, that's for sure. There weren't long. I mean, you basically, if nothing bad happened to you, you lived to an old age. It wasn't like, you know, you just happened to always die young. But, you know, when people were a little less concerned about trying to live to a ripe old age and were more concerned about deeds and doing things and whatever else, it definitely seems to be the case that, you know, right. you want to go do something with your life. And you know what? I'm going to head out on the ocean and see if I find something cool. And otherwise, I guess I just won't come back, you know. I'm going to head out on the ocean. Can you imagine the number of people that have been lost at sea that we have no idea of because yes. of that? I was just thinking about that the other night because I was listening to the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, and that just seems about one of the worst possible ends to me is drowning out in the ocean. So, you know. I often think also about people that go missing. Mm -hmm. Um, It's kind of a a really morbid topic, Um, but like the people that go missing that we never find, there are so many of them. What Do they all go live in a mysterious city together? Do they just disappear? These are, these things keep me up at night sometimes. Yep. Anyhow. All right. Well, back to Easter Islands. <laughs> Easter Islands. <laughs> yeah. uh. So, um, 
Some people argue that navigators of the first millennium could never plotted a course over such immense distances without modern precise instruments. Others contend that the Polynesians were the world's most skilled seafarers, so they probably know what they were doing. Yeah, I mean, my question One, is, it's not that you couldn't plot a course, but you have to know that there's a place to plot a course too, like, you know. Thank you. Yep, exactly. Uh, one archaeoastronomer, that's not a real thing, suggests that a new supernova in the ancient skies may have pointed the way. That is a huge leap of faith once again. But did the voyagers know that the island was even there? Nobody knows. The islanders, however, have a story. Nice. Are you excited about this? I am. So, Benedicto Tuki, who was a 65-year-old master woodcarver and keeper of ancient knowledge, um, introduced himself originally as the descendant of the island's first king, Hotumatui, Hotumatua, uh, Matua, who he said brought the original settlers from an island named Hiva in the Marquesas. He claimed his grandmother was the island's last queen. So, in his uh, native like. In his native tongue, the island and the people are called the Rapa Nui. Platforms that the statues rest on are called the Ahu, and the statues are called the Moai. There are seven Moai that you can see from the road when you first breach, mm -hmm. and a lot of people will say that they're watching over the land um, with their back to the sea, but according to Tukai, they stare out beyond the island across the oceans to the west, remembering where they come from. So when Hatu Matuas arrived on the island, they brought seven different races with them. Um, they became the seven tribes of the Rapa Nui. The Moai represent the original ancestor from the Marquese and the kings of other Polynesian islands. Tukai himself gazes into the distance as he chants their names um, and tells everyone that nothing that I'm telling you is written down. My grandmother told it to me before she died. And he was the 68th generation since the Hotumatuas. Nice. Which, this is not an uncommon thing for this, like, oral tradition to span 68 generations yep. and not lose a lot of the story. Which is just amazing, you know. Isn't that? That's I a hell it. of a game of telephone, so. Right? I love it. That's why I love the Aborigine stories is because they're very similar. They've gone on for 60,000 years, and they can match the archaeological record to the stories that they're telling, which is fabulous. Anyhow, we'll get there someday. So Tukai says that the uh, reason that the Hotu, the chief of the Hotu Matuas came to Rapa Nui was because there was a lot of fighting at home. Um, and they had a tattooist slash priest named Haumaka that had a dream where he flew across the ocean and saw Rapa Nui in its location, and he describes it in detail. And so the chief, Hotu Matua, and his brother-in-law decided, let's get in some big old canoes mm -hmm. and go. So they did. They loaded the canoes with people, food, water, plants, and animals. And after two months, they arrived in Akana Bay, which was exactly as their tattooist slash priest had described. Impressive. Right? Cultural yeah. memory again. Unbelievable. Yeah. But, you know, it's always just, I don't know, that kind of stuff amazes me. I mean, even more modern stuff like Shackleton and their, you know, yeah. being in a bunch of tiny little boats in the middle of rough Arctic, you know, Antarctic seas and, you know, being able to actually hit some tiny little island somewhere with, you know, next to nothing is just, that, you know, that kind of stuff's nuts. Right? It's unbelievable. I have a hard enough time, like, you know, navigating my way to Kansas City, but whatever. 
And you are necessarily like packing up your family and moving them without a map. Like when you do that, you, you are going to take everything you own. You usually know where you're headed. That's crazy. Yeah. But if you just, if you took away all the roads right now and you just said, okay, walk to Manhattan, how confident are you if you just picked a direction and started walking that you would actually hit Manhattan, you know, like, Without any roads, I think I could get there directionally, but I think I would either be very far south or very far north. Yeah, I'd have to, you know, I mean, I could get there eventually. You know, you'd, you'd eventually run into a river or something that, you know, you know, it's like, okay, you know, you could do something like follow the car or whatever. But if you just had to, you know, think of it as ocean-wise and you just had to pick a direction and go. No, you'd be even so Even if you knew exactly quick. nominally where it was, if you didn't have anything else, it would be, it would be difficult. And I don't know, Will. I've watched Moana. I think mm-hmm. I know how seafaring works now. And yeah, you stick your I hand in the I water and you feel the warm water from Maui and that tells you where to go. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah I definitely did not end up capsized. the ocean in front of you and it's all, it's all good. I would be yeah. so screwed. I can't even do it, guys. <laughs> all right. Um, one of the island artists named Christian Avrello Pecorati um, works with archaeologists and basically tells them stories um, so that they can try to find the co- the things that coincide, right? Mm-hmm. So um, he took archaeologists up to a volcano called Rana Rakaru, where there is a quarry where the Moai were carved. Um, apparently, there's a really steep path that winds up through the landscape that you can see. And then once you get up there, you can see that the Moai... Um, some of them are standing without any particular order. Some are buried up to their necks. Some have fallen down. Um, and some were abandoned here before they were ever moved. Mm-hmm. And he says, it's hard to imagine how the carvers must have felt when they were told to stop working. They'd been carving these statues for centuries until one day someone shows up, tells them to quit and to go home because there's no more food. There's a war and no one believes in the statues anymore. So, like, he really identified with these four fathers, if you mm-hmm. will. Um, and he worked with Joanne Van Tilburg, who was an archaeologist from the University of California, Los Angeles, and spent a long time making drawings and measurements of all the Moai for, um, for archaeological research. Anyhow, the quarry where the stones were carved show that the colossal figures are in every stage of completion, uh, laid out on their backs with a sort of, sort of stone keel attaching them to the bedrock carved from a soft stone called Lapituff, um, which is a compressed volcanic ash. Um, and the figures lay side by side in this little niche. Hmm. And people had complete control over this stone. They could move the statues from here to Tahai, which is 15 kilometers away, without breaking the nose, the lips, the fingers, or anything. Yeah. So that's pretty, that's pretty impressive. Yeah. No, I mean, it also shows that they did indeed carve them there and then move them as opposed to just move a rock and then carve it on spot, which would be easier. <laughs> right. But, you know, yeah. Uh, when the statue was almost complete, the carvers drilled holes through the keel to break it from the bedrock and then slip, slid it down the slope into a big hole where they could stand it up and then finish the back. Nice. The eye sockets were carved um, once a statue was on its uh, who, which was that platform. And then white and coral obsidian eyes were, no, White coral and obsidian eyes were inserted during ceremonies to awaken the Moai's power. Hmm. In some cases, the statues were adorned with huge cylindrical hats or top knots of red skiora 
um, which is another volcanic stone. But first, the statue had to be moved, uh, which is nearly. They, oh, they had to be moved to the island's 300 Ahu platforms. Um, and when it was done, it was still a matter of dispute. And then the legends say that the Moai walked there with the help of a chief or a priest who had mana or a supernatural power. Yeah. Archaeologists have proposed other methods, obviously, <laughs> such as the log rollers, sledges, or ropes. Yeah. Okay. So basically trying to sort out all the facts has led researchers to be super confused. <laughs> um, so they're looking at the meaning of the monuments, the reason for the outbreak of warfare, why the culture collapsed after a thousand years of peace. And apart from oral tradition, there's zero historical records here before the first European Europeans arrived. Um, but there's a lot of evidence, such as the excavation of bones and weapons um, and the study of fossilized vegetation as well as the analysis of stylistic changes in the statues and petroglyphs that allow kind of a rough history to emerge, right? Mm -hmm. So the people who settled on the island found it covered in trees, which was a valuable resource for making canoes and probably useful in transporting them alive. And they brought with them plants and animals to provide food, although the, the only animals that survived were chickens and rats. Oh, nice. <laughs> The only thing that you can come on ships are rats, I feel like. Um, and then artistic traditions that evolved in that isolation produced a rich imagery of ornaments for the priests and priests in their aerostatic lineages. Um, and then they seem to have some sort of caste system, if you will. So there were several that became master carvers, divers, canoe builders, and then there was like an artistic guild, things like that. Okay. Um, an archaeologist by the name of Georgia Lee spent six years documenting the island's petroglyphs and thinks that they're just as exciting as the Moai. Um, she says that there's nothing like it in Polynesia, which is interesting to me. Yeah. Uh, specifically because they came from Polynesian islands. Um, she says that the, the size, scope, the beauty, and the designs is extraordinary. So at some point in the island's history, when both art and population were increasing, all of the resources on the island became overtaxed. Too many trees began to get cut down. Without trees, you don't have any canoes. Without mm -hmm. canoes, you can't fish. So people were starving. But they're still carving these giant statues. Yeah. So the earliest Moai were much thinner. And then the later Moai have these really big curved bellies. Um, and so what you reflect in your idols is the ideal that you desire, right? Yeah. So when everybody's hungry, you make them fat and big. Um, and then when the islanders ran out of resources, speculation says that they threw their idols down and started killing each other. Sounds fun. Yeah, it's kind of sad. I don't like it, yeah. but I mean, it kind of makes some sense. Yeah, some Lord of the Flies time. Right. So some archaeologists point to a layer of subsoil um, that shows a lot of obsidian spear. So obsidian is uh, specifically a volcanic rock, and mm. it's like glass. And when you're flint napping, which is how you create your points and such, mm -hmm. um, those points are extremely sharp. Yep. They're some of the nicest ones. Um, but this layer of subsoil that has all these spear points is a sign of sudden warfare. Uh, Islanders say there was probably a little bit of cannibalism because they literally just ran out of everything, as well as a ton of carnage. 
and there is a forensic anthropologist by the name of Douglas Osley who studied the bones of 600 individuals from the island and found a lot of signs of trauma, such as blows to the face and head. Occasionally, he says, though, that these injuries did result in death, um, but not always, which is indicative of a lot of fighting, basically. Yeah. In any case, the population that grew to as many as 20,000 was reduced to a few thousand when the first of the European ships started to arrive. And then within 150 years, it knocked them down. And yeah. then by 1877, we're down to 110 natives. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. And I know that's another thing that I, you know, I don't know that much about, but I've heard several things that there was a, a much more massive population in North America and that basically the, you know, Europeans came over right after there was just a huge drop in population and everything else. So, that, you know. It was a it, huge population uh, that was decimated by an outside virus, they think. Yeah, because um, I heard so they were assuming, because you had all the, the huge trading societies and everything being traded yeah. up and down the Mississippi and the, you know mound builders and all that kind of stuff and it all had kind of recently vanished right before so this is why the people in the americas is super interesting there's all these theories of when europeans actually arrived in america mm -hmm. versus when like we were peopled so yeah. the natives the and if you want to call them natives because eventually everywhere yeah. has been yeah. populated yep. uh, but like the people that were in america when the europeans first arrived probably had two or three waves of virus introduction Mm -hmm. And because of the way that they traded, we probably lost millions of people when the Europeans officially arrived. Yeah, yeah. that makes sense. So let's talk about the phases of island culture. There were three distinct cultural phases. The early period, which was between 700 and 850 AD. The middle period, which was 1050 to 1680. And the late period, which was um, post-1680, basically. So between the early and middle periods, evidence showed that many statues were deliberately destroyed and then rebuilt as okay. the larger and heavier Moai, um, which is what the island has become most famous for. During the middle period, um, there were several burial, burial chambers and the images portrayed by the Moai are thought to have represented important figures that were deified after death. Okay. The biggest statue found dating to the middle period measures about 32 feet tall and is a single block weighing 82 tons. <laughs> it's huge. Yeah, that is massive. Yeah. The late period of the island civilization was characterized completely by civil war and destruction. Um, a ton of statues were toppled. There's a ton of obsidian spear points, which in that area are called Mata, which is probably pronounced wrong. Um, and the island tradition claims that around 1680, after peacefully coexisting for many years, one of the island's two main groups, known as the Short Ears, rebelled against the Long Ears, burning them to death on a pyre constructed along an ancient ditch at Pokai on the island's far northeastern coast. Sounds like a fun time. <laughs> that's, a, that's a lot. Yeah. 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 I love that their tribe names are the short ears and the long ears, though. Yeah. I have a yeah. lot of questions about that. <laughs> um, although the population rebounded steadily through the 20th century, Native Islanders still don't own the land. The Chilean government claimed possession of Easter Island in 1888, and in 1935, they designated it a national park to preserve the thousands of archaeological sites. Um, archaeologist Van Tilburg estimates that there could be as many as 20,000 sites on the mm -hmm. island. 
this is like if you go to the islands in Scotland, there's a site every feet, every few feet. I mean, yeah. you just have to dig. Today, about 2,000 native people and about as many Chileans crowd into the island's only village, which is Hongaroa, in its outskirts. Under growing pressure, the Chilean government is giving back a small number of homesteads to native families, which alarms archaeologists, obviously, um, stirs intense debate. But though they are largely dispossessed, the Rapa Nui people have reemerged from the shadows of the past. I love that phrase. Um, and they're reinventing their ancient arts and culture. So you can go there today and they still have people that are carving wooden moai. Um, and there's like a professional tattoo artist who's using traditional tattoo methods. And they're looking at pictures that they had from um, Polynesian artists and other island areas to come up with their form of like traditional cultural tattoos. Mm -hmm. And then he's using the uh, pictographs from Georgia Lee's 1992 book from the petroglyphs. Um, so the tattoo culture is being totally reborn there, which I think is fascinating. Hmm. Um, and a lot of people do a lot of art about the Moai. Um, I mean, it's a great way to earn money, right? Yeah. Then there's dancing and musicians that are doing traditional native chants. They sway like palms in the wind. So there's a lot of Polynesian flavor to this. Um, and that cultural movement is making a big comeback right now as well. So it's like they're looking at some of traditional things and then reinventing it, which is just beautiful. That's cool. So some people, though, say that these new cultural uh, revolutions have very little to do with the actual ancient culture and more to do with tourist dollars. Yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> Look, if you can make a buck on trying to reinvent your history, I say go yeah. for it, right? Yeah. Um, but, you know, obviously you're going to have people that say it's a thing. Some people would say it's not. Whatever. People are trying to, to hold on to whatever they have left, essentially, right? Yeah. So, but um, even the oldest and most traditional artisans say that the tourists provide essential support for them because if they didn't, they would just let this completely go. Grant McCall, who's an anthropologist from the University of New South Wales in Australia, says that this is totally true. If they didn't have tourism, they would have completely reinvented their culture into something different. So at least they're holding on to the little bit of culture that they have, right? Yeah. And it's kind of like when they lose, when you lose a language, as long as you have two people that can still speak the language, language is still alive. As soon as one of those people dies, that language is a completely dead language because no one can speak it. Yeah. All right. Where are we at? Um, I don't care about that. So here are some theories from, as I'm reading through, I wrote a paragraph that I was like, eh, no. All right. So some theories from archeologists. Um, two British scientists have decided that they understand the riddle of why some of the megaliths are crowned by hats carved of red stone. Remember I mentioned that? Yeah. yeah. Right. Colin Richards of the University of Manchester and Sue Hamilton of the University of College in London, University of University College London, retraced a centuries-old road that led to an ancient quarry where the island inhabitants mined red volcanic pumice. They believe that the hats were first introduced as a distinctive feature between 1200 and 1300, which was a period when the island's brooding mysterious statues were created on a scale that was larger than before. 
The hats, they theorize, may represent a plait or top knot, which would have been worn by chieftains and then engaged in epic struggle. The chieftains that were then engaged in epic struggles for dominance. Mm -hmm. So because it was a chieftain society, um, they thought it was highly competitive and it suggested that they were competing so much that they overran their resources. Remember I said that there was that period of time when they tried to carve the deities to Mm -hmm. or the the Moai to look like to represent their leaders. Yeah. Yeah. So that was what they assumed then. Okay. Another group of archaeologists, this time from UCLA, started the Easter Island Project, and they've been excavating the buried forms. Um, So, Newsweek reported that these people headed by anthropologist Carl Lippo are answering the question of how the statues came to be and why did they end up where they are. He's been studying the island for 20 years. One of the things that he has looked at specifically is how did they survive on an island with so little drinking water? So this is a yeah. really interesting idea. Average rainfall for this island is 48 inches per year. There are very few springs or other freshwater sources. So they started doing field studies to figure out how the Rapa Nui might have used the brackish groundwater. Um, and there were historical accounts that they drank the water, but nothing to indicate where they got it from. Mm-hmm. So they did several surveys and found where you could get water but the thing that was really interesting was that the moai were actually placed where the water was okay to drink (laughs) Um, and the more they looked the more consistently they saw the pattern so places without the moai had no fresh water Um, so they thought it was a really striking pattern that even when they found the moai in the interior of the island they found water nearby he also noted that the issue of why the monoliths had been built had been a central mystery, right? So he thought it was logical to explain that the statues should all be placed in spot where they would be easy to see, especially to outsiders. However, that's not the case. Sometimes they are placed in places where you wouldn't be able to see them from anywhere else, which is why he thinks that they're actually markers of water versus like religious symbology. Huh. All right. So, a lot of effort to put into Mark the water spot but yeah that's some big indicators of where the freaking water is on a small <laughs> island. <laughs> all right so here's a new study this study indicates that civilization was still going strong when the europeans arrived in 1722 the island was settled in the 13th century by polynesians this is part of this whole theory right mm-hmm. um and let's see the research which appears in the journal of archaeological scientists science contests that the accepted timeline for the Easter Island Society was already in decline by 1600 and the massive stones were left in disrepair. So using radiocarbon dating on 11 of the sites, the authors determined the timeline of each of the monuments construction. The findings indicate that the Easter Island Islanders were still actively building new Moai figures until 1750, Hmm. which radiocarbon dating has like a 50 year plus or minus if i remember right yeah so i think it's a little too on the nose personally but whatever um so further supporting these were the results of historical documents from the first european visitors the dutch who arrived in 1722 they were still they still saw the monuments being used in active ritual use with no decide no signs of a decline same for the spanish that came in 1770 it was in so between 1770 and 74 Something yeah. big happened, in other words. Okay. 
and they interpret the results in the sequence of historical accounts that the notion of a pre-European collapse of the monument construction is no longer supported. So back in 2000, everyone thought that it was prior to the Europeans coming that this happened. Um, but once the Europeans arrived on the island, there's a ton of documentation saying that there was a bunch of disease, murder, slave raiding, and other com um, conflicts that caused the, her the decline. Okay. Um, and then the little bit of cultural heritage that has been passed on has been passed on by the like 50 people that survived all that. Yeah. Okay, let's move on. Carvers in ancient Rapa Nui culture created a thousand moai on orders from the ruling class because they believed the statues would produce agricultural fertility and critical food supplies, according to a study published by the Journal of Archaeological Science. Joanne Van Tilburg, who we talked about earlier, mm -hmm. uh, believe they found evidence of this previously hypothesized meaning by studying two specific moai that were excavated over five years on the Rano Rakuru quarry on the eastern side. Their excavation brought in the perspective of the Moai encouraged people to realize that nothing, no matter how obvious, is as it seems. So Van Tilburg has been working on the island for 30 years and believes that in addition to serving as a quarry um, and place for carving the statues, Rano Rakaru is the site of productive agriculture. Okay. The team estimates that the statue from the inner quarry were raised on or before 1510 to 1645 AD. But earlier, like I said, everybody pretty much agrees that <laughs> they stopped constructing them by the early 1700s. I'm just going to okay. put that out there. Um, this study, however, alters the idea that all the standing statues were simply awaiting transport out of the quarry. So they think that she hypothesizes that um, the other upright Moai in the Rano Rakaru quarry were retained in place to ensure the sacred nature of the quarry itself. Um, and that the Moai were central to the idea of fertility and the Rapa Nui believed that their presence here stimulated agricultural food production. I don't, I don't know. I Who mean, knows? right? Yeah. Uh, let's see what else she says. Basically, this study just totally altered the idea that all the standing statues in the quarry were waiting to be transported um, and that it made the quarry itself this symbol mm -hmm. of fertility. I mean, whatever. <laughs> so here's the wrap up. Easter Island has no natural harbor. Ships can anchor off of the Hongaroa on the west side. Um, that's also the island's largest village with a population of about 3,300. In 1995, UNESCO named Easter Island a World Heritage Site. It's now home to a mixed population, mostly of Polynesian people, and made up of descendants of the long and short years. Generally, they speak Spanish on the island, and they've developed a large economy based on tourism. However, I don't know if you saw in the news back in March. Here we go. Yeah. A Chilean island resident was arrested on March 1st after his truck, a private vehicle, not a commercial one, crashed into one of the stone figures and badly damaged it and the Yahoo, once again the platform, mm -hmm. that it was perched on. <laughs> Local authorities believe that the accident was caused by brake failure that had caused his truck to slide downhill. The uh, damage was considered incalculable um, by the president of Easter Island's indigenous Rapa Nui community. The island mayor paid 
Mayor Pedro Pablo Petro Edmonds Power. God, those are long names. <laughs> has been calling for stricter regulations to prohibit vehicles from driving near the um, 1,000 Moai um, Mm -hmm. on the island. He had tried to pass this eight years ago, and he told everybody, like, we tried. We've been saying we don't want roads to go anywhere near the Moai, but no one was listening. Mm -hmm. So they're hoping that this accident could be a motivating factor to get this law passed. Um, Yeah. And as a territory of Chile, um, they have longed to struggle to balance their status as a bucket travel destination, bucket list travel destination, um, as well as trying to preserve the local people's heritage. Yeah. So yeah, over tourism yeah. has become a major concern for the island um, because it's easier and easier to access the island from the mainland these days. Okay. And in 2019, um, Dr. Van Tilburg who is the director of the Easter Island Status Project, who's that archaeologist we talked about, mm-hmm. basically says that bad tourist behavior, such as tacky photos of visitors pretending to pick the noses of the sacred <laughs> Noai, was causing a huge rift between travelers and locals. <laughs> like, there's a thousand statues and there's 5,000 people. Yeah. So calm down just a little bit. <laughs> and she urges visitors to the island to show a little bit more respect for the Rapa Nui community and to engage local guides um, mm-hmm. to make sure that tourism revenue stays on the island. So they're trying, they've implemented some over-tourism guidelines, okay. but yeah, it's still, it's still rough. All right. You ready to go down the rabbit hole? Yeah. So what have we got here? Total, there are 887 monolithic carvings called the Moai. Um, the largest was 86 tons and it's 30 feet tall. The average, however, is only about half that tall. Okay. And it's assumed that they were carved while lying on their backs, while they were finished only when they were upright. And then I'm trying to think if there's any other major exciting facts for you. Oh, um, archaeologists just in the last about 20 years have discovered that the statues are not just heads their actual bodies, which I think is fascinating. So they've actually buried them up. Okay. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, No, that's, that's kind of like a running far side cartoon or something where you show the the bodies of them doing various things underneath the ground. I know. And I love it. I love, I love like, what if they accidentally put one upside down and all you can see are their toes? Like (laughs) it's great to me. Uh, So that is our Easter Island information for the day. Cool. Well, thanks. That's pretty awesome. Thank you. Oh, all right. We have our our Easter-related theme. So. That's right. Way that's to as go. close as they could get. Yeah, and we probably won't be, you know, killed as blasphemers, so that, that's, that's good. That's so. probably for the best today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, sweet. Thank you, everybody, for listening yet again. And uh, as always, rate, review, subscribe. Let your friends know about our, our fun podcast. And uh, we will catch you all next week. Yep, see you then. Yep, bye.